Ezekiel chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and we're going to do our best to break it down. Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for your, all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. O inhabitant of the land, the time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without. Pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all their faces and baldness on all their heads. And they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the, day, the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns. The prince is wrapped in despair. And the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Now... As God's continued warnings of judgment are being spoken, we need to take some time tonight to ask a question. 
If you've been in this study, you'll know that Ezekiel's been telling them for quite a while now already of the coming judgment of the siege on Jerusalem and how we've already seen how the, they're going to be under such despair. They're going to be eating their own children. There's going to be pestilence and disease and famine. And there's going to be anybody that tries to escape the city will be killed. And even if anybody makes it out, they're going to be chased by the sword. And only a few, few there will be that make it out alive. And, and we've just seen these warnings over and over and over, haven't we? I'm going to ask you a question tonight, and my prayer is by the time we finish answering this question, it'll change how we view things like this. Because if you're like me, you read chapter 7 and you say, Whew, pretty rough, isn't it? Yet at the same time, in the back of our minds, it's like, how many times is he going to keep saying it? I mean, he keeps saying it over and over and over. And actually, this isn't the first time that he's been saying it over and over. If you know anything about the history of Israel, Isaiah's been saying the same thing for years. And then Jeremiah picks up the mantle and he says it. And now Ezekiel, after he's been taken into captivity, is ordained by God to be a prophet. And he keeps saying it. Why does God warn so many times? Especially since last time we were together, we saw last week that he will do everything he said he'll do. So here's the question. Why does God keep warning so many times? He's even said tonight, the end, it's time, it's come, you're doomed, it's here. Yet as you're going to find out later on, the judgment won't happen right away. It's still a few years off. Why does God warn so many times? And this is very important, yes, because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. You, exactly. I'm glad you said that. That's where we're going to go. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verses 9 and 10. He doesn't wish for anyone to perish. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. By the way, to catch you up to speed, Peter's been telling them how in the same way in which God reserved the earth earlier for judgment by water, he's reserved this earth for destruction by fire. And the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Go real quick to Ezekiel chapter 18. Back to Ezekiel, but look at chapter 18, look at two verses, 23 and 32. I want you to see the heart of God. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God asks this question, and then he answers it in verse 32. In verse 23, he says, have I, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32, he answers the question, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. By the way, who's saying this? God, through who? Ezekiel. Quite a few chapters down the road from chapter 7. The warnings continue, even though he's already said, we saw it last week, I'm going to do everything I said I would do. Yet, in his mercy, he has the prophets warn and warn and warn, or the preachers warn and warn and warn in hopes that some individuals will respond to it. He knows already that as a whole, well, what did Jesus say? He said, wide's the path that goes to destruction and many go that way and narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. 
But even though few compared to many will respond to the gospel, Jesus continues to offer this salvation, this free gift, not only in our day. Back then, he was offering a chance for them to repent and to turn to him. Now, I also want you to understand, as we were looking at Ezekiel here, has God already set the day that the judgment is going to happen? When God says the end is here, the do- he already knows what day Nebuchadnezzar's siege is going to begin and how it's all going to play out. He already knows the day that it's going to be that they're taken into captivity and all this stuff begins to finalize. So the day was set, correct? Let me point out something to you that a lot of Christians don't know because we've been told a wrong thing. I want you to hear this, and I'm going to show you from Scripture how I can prove it. The day of Jesus' return and the judgment of the world has already been set. It's not waiting on anything. Well, we've been told the opposite. We've been told that as soon as the gospel gets to the whole world, then the end will come. And as soon as we get the gospel to everybody, then that Jesus can come back. And we thought it was up to us to get the word out. As soon as we get off our butts and we get the word out, then Jesus... No, let me show you from Scripture. Go to Acts, 7, Acts chapter 17. It cannot be any more clear that God has already set the day of judgment. The Scripture says, though, in those words. In Acts chapter 17... Look at verses 29 through 31. Paul's preaching here. And he says, being then God's offspring, verse 29 of Acts 17, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. It's already been set. In which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just because we're not to know the times or the dates that the Father has, how does the scripture say? Set by his own authority. Did you catch that? They've already been set. The day of Jesus' return is not waiting on anything, folks. It's already in motion. The day's coming, you know, we, we count to how many more days till Christmas because we know what day Christmas is coming. In the same way, the day of God's judgment of the whole earth and being reserved for fire, even though we think he's slow in keeping the promise to do the judgment that he said he's going to do, he's not. It's been set. But his warnings are because of his mercy. And here's how I want you to hear. I want you to hear the warnings in a different way from now on. And the rest of our study, as we go through Ezekiel and we get to the part of our study, you'll see when we get to that part of Ezekiel, there comes a point where Ezekiel hears that the judgment has already come, that that Nebuchadnezzar has done his last attack, Jerusalem is destroyed. And from that point on in our study of Ezekiel, he'll start prophesying about the millennial time period and the kingdom to come. But here's how I want you to hear all the warnings that are going to continue in the chapters to come. Instead of saying, there he goes again, or there's another warning. I want you to see every time that he says, here the judgment's coming, as a gift. It's a gift. Do you understand what I mean by this? Because every time he says, watch out, or here it comes, or I'm going to do it, it's been decided. Every time he says that, why does he say it? In hopes that an individual will listen. Have you ever told your kids something and they finally hear it? How many times have I got to? Well, we don't know how many, but keep saying it because one day maybe they'll hear it. And by the way, as a traveling preacher, I've had many a pastor say to me, 
you come in and say something to them and they actually hear it. I've been telling them that for years. And I said, don't worry about who they heard it from. Be glad they heard it. We're not worried about whether they heard it from me or you. We just want them to hear it. We want them to hear it. So every time that God warns, it's a gift. It's a gift. All right? My, my kids like to count their gifts at Christmas. They keep track of how many this one got and how many this one got. You want to have some fun? Start making little notes on a piece of paper or in your Bible. Every time you from now on, you see one of these warnings, judgment, doom, gloom, it's a gift. It's a gift. All right, go to Isaiah 65. This will be a transition into our study of Ezekiel 7 tonight. That was just the introduction. Go to Isaiah 65. Look at verses 2 through 7. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 2, God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people, speaking of the nation of Israel, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. By the way, when it talks about sitting in tombs and spending the night in secret places, that's consulting the dead. They would actually consult the dead. By the way, are people doing that today? Unfortunately, it's even happened in our White House. They consult the dead. Who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. Listen closely to this. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. That's important. I want you to hear that word measure. God is not just going to pour out his wrath randomly, haphazardly. God's not going to just, at that time, just get angry and lose his temper. Some of us probably had parents that sometimes would discipline out of anger and lose their temper and just do stuff they didn't even realize they were doing. Listen closely. When God pours out his wrath on mankind, and when man, God ultimately judges mankind at the great white throne judgment, even though it looks severe and unmeasured, it's measured according to to what they've done. Now we're going to deal with tonight the difference between those who are going to be judged for their sins and those of us who aren't going to be judged for our sins. And thank God we're in that group that aren't going to be judged for our sins. Because as you're going to see tonight, when God judges those who reject him through Jesus Christ, who reject the only way they can be made right before him, what you're going to see tonight is this. When he judges those who have rejected the only way they can be forgiven, he then will pay them for eternity according to everything they've done. Now, and that may go deeper than you think. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Actually, go to, go to Ezekiel 7. I'll point out a couple of things here real quick. Then we'll go to Matthew 12. Look at Ezekiel 7. Look at verse 3, verses 8 and 9, and verse 27. In Ezekiel 7, verse 3, God says, Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. All right, look at verse 8. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you. I will spend my anger against you. 
and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations in your midst. Now look at verse 27. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they'll know that I'm the Lord. So look closely. God's judgment is not just haphazard. For the wicked who reject him, he will judge them according to what they've done. Oh, by the way, you want to get a rough idea on how he keeps track? Go to Matthew chapter 12. And look at verse 36. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. And then thank God for his forgiveness of all our sins. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, look at what's waiting for those who don't have their sins covered through Jesus. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, Jesus is speaking, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Did you catch that? It's pretty serious stuff. He's kept track of every careless word. Sin is serious in the eyes of God. And a holy God can't overlook sin at all. That's why what happened to his son was so severe. It was the payment for man's sin. He's going to keep track of every careless word. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Has anybody here ever had a careless word? I've had a few. Thank God he won't keep track of those because my sins have been covered. But for those who don't know the Lord, this is what's waiting. He's going to measure it according to everything they've done. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, Solomon says, is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring some deeds, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's watching. He sees it all. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 6. Here in this passage, you'll see the difference between those who are in Christ and those who aren't in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Peter's now speaking to believers, and he says this. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For, that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, you see the word they, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. God's going to bring into judgment. Into a, give, everyone's going to have to give account to him on that day of judgment. Now here in this passage, he's saying there's a difference between us and them. Because of Jesus... And because he suffered in the flesh for our sins, we need to reckon our mindset that we are in Christ, 
Now, I'm going to kind of take a second here. I don't want to take too much time. I think I took too much time on this last night, and it made us have to really, really rush at the end, and I don't want to do that tonight, but we're still going to, I can promise. But Peter hinted at a distinction between two groups. They, those who will be judged, and you, those who live in the Spirit. What determines which group that you're in? Faith in Christ who provides forgiveness of sins. Let me just point out something to you real quick. I had the privilege yesterday of speaking to a group of men over at Central Baptist, which I've been doing for quite a few years now, and uh, I had the privilege of taking the time to show them in Luke chapter 2, where the angels come to the shepherds and they say, we have good news of great joy that will be for what? All the people. But if you keep listening to the rest of what the angels say, at the end they say, and peace on earth to whom he is well pleased. Some of your translations say, with whom his favor rests. Listen, don't miss this. The angels come and announce, we have good news of great joy that's for everybody. A Savior's been born in Bethlehem. It's the Christ, the Lord. But peace is only to those with whom he's well pleased. Now listen closely, because our first thought is, well, how do I get him well pleased with me? And as you do a study of this, you're going to find that actually the best way to study a passage is to compare other places in the Bible where that same phrase is used to get a better idea of what's being said. So I took them briefly to look at other places where God says, I'm well pleased. And at one time is in, in Luke chapter 3 where Jesus is baptized. And as you know, it says John was baptizing a lot of people, but then he also baptized Jesus. And when Jesus came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. And the Father spoke audibly so that everybody heard. And he said, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Did you catch that? With him I'm well pleased. On Matthew chapter 17, while Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there with him, and they're talking together, and then this cloud envelops them. The kind of glory of God enveloped them, and a voice from heaven spoke again. Listen to what he said. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. And then God adds this, and he says, listen to him. And later on, Jesus is explaining, whoever hears the Father and believes in me, will have eternal life. Listen closely. There's only one person that God is well pleased with. It's Jesus. And the way that you be in that group and whom he's well pleased is to be in Jesus. That's all it is, is to be in Jesus. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, he lived in this flesh without sin, correct? He was tempted in ways that we can't even fathom, more than we could even, even have endured. But he was tempted yet without sin, and he had victory over the flesh. He suffered in the flesh, was put to death, rose from the dead, and does sin have any power over him now? In other words, it didn't have power over him then, but he was tempted. Does sin even tempt Jesus anymore? No. Now, since we are in Christ, Paul's been saying this, Peter's been saying this, those of us who are now in Christ need to reckon our minds to the fact that because we are in Christ, that same power that was in Christ, because he's God, lives within us because Jesus lives within us and God's within us. And in the same way, if we, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, say no to our flesh, and put that on the altar on a daily basis, and renew our minds, that same power that kept Jesus from sinning is within us. And we need to reckon ourselves to that. And we need to say no to all the stuff the world's doing. And they're going to think you're crazy, and it doesn't make sense why they don't, you don't join them. But they're going to have to give an account one day. Praise God, we won't. The only reason why 
is because we put our faith in Jesus. And he's the one whom God's well pleased with. And we're in him. That's so important to us. Go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to take you on a real quick foundational doctrinal study of this. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 24. Romans 3, 9 through 24. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then it goes on and describes how worthless everyone is. Now let me just stop real quick and say something to you before I continue reading. Some of us have a tendency to say, I know my child doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus, but he's a good boy. The Bible says there's no such person that's good. You want proof? You go to Jeremiah chapter 17, look at verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful beyond all things. Actually, some translations say beyond cure. Folks, those of us in here who I'm assuming everybody here knows the Lord Jesus. Do you still struggle with sin? Are you kind of embarrassed about some of the stuff that you still are tempted by? Are you not sitting there today glad that the things you go have you wrestle with in the flesh aren't known by the rest of the world? You've already been made new. But our hearts are wicked. There's no such thing as they're a good boy or she's a good girl. He's a good man. No. The world's got to get to that point of realizing they're lost. The sooner we parents acknowledge that and pray for them because they're lost. We seem to love them, but we need to be understanding. Apart from them being in Christ, I don't care how much I want to see them as a good boy or a good girl. There's no one good. Look at verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, by being good or obeying the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They've been saying this all along. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. You go to chapter 8. There's now, therefore, no condemnation... For those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't make us sinless. All it did was amp up our sin, show us our sin. By sending his own son, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, listen closely, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you were like me, when I first read that years ago, I thought, man, I was so excited in the beginning at chapter 8, verse 1, where it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But now you go say, but only for those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Well, I don't know about you. I walk according to the flesh sometimes, don't you? Aren't there days that you act in the flesh and not in the Spirit? Didn't we, when we studied before that 
Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. So if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. There's a difference between walking in the Spirit and being in the Spirit and being saved. And at first I was all excited, and then I read that, and I thought, oh man, now it's back on me. That's why we need to keep reading and study from the Holy Scripture. Jump down to verse 9. I love how Paul clarifies it. He knew Jim was going to wrestle with it. God did. You, however, I highlighted in my Bible, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And he encouraged me again and showed me, I'm not in the flesh, I'm in the Spirit because I'm in Christ. Now listen closely. Paul in chapter 7 had just said, the things I want to do I don't, the things I don't want to do I do. And he says twice in that passage, therefore when I sin it's no longer me who's doing it, but it's sin living in me. This is the thing I want you to hear. There are still consequences for disobedience for believers, but never condemnation. Does God correct? All the time, lovingly. But will he ever say, you're no good? No, because if you're in Christ, you've been made good because of Jesus. And he's pleased because you're in the one with whom he's well pleased. Folks, I'm sharing all this, and you say, Jim, this is pretty basic stuff, but let's be honest. We all need to be reminded of this, don't we? But I also share this with you to help you understand. Aren't you glad that God was patient and merciful to you and gave you opportunity to respond to his offer of mercy and grace? I can tell you right now, even though the day's been set and the judgment's coming, I'm glad that it didn't happen before 1973. Because I've been able to be a part of what he's going to reward us with for eternity. And if it, the judgment happened before 73, and God's been reminding me of this because i got to be honest with you folks, the closer we get to that day, the more I don't want to be here. And it's been getting to the point where I hate the world so much, I just want to go. Lord, I'm done. Am I been feeling that way? Where you just wake up and say, oh, again, here, I'm ready to be there. And God has said, Jim, you're losing perspective. The reason I haven't taken you yet is there's more Jim Johnsons that I want to see saved. I love them just as much as I love you. I'm going to give them opportunity. Oh, the day set, and I want you to be looking for my return, but don't lose sight of the fact that the fact that you're still on this earth and the judgment hasn't come yet is a gift. Do you see it? I want you to see every day as a gift for those who can be saved today. I want you to see every time he says, the judgment's coming, as a gift. In Psalm 32, David says, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose sin is covered, whom God does not count in iniquity. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, Jesus, became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I want to clarify this for you real quickly. How did, did Jesus ever sin? Then how did he become sin? Okay, but what was put on him? 
our sin. He can't even have sin. Our sin was put on Jesus. He became sin. Oh, that's awesome. You know why? Are any of us righteous? Not any of ourselves. Then how can we be declared righteous? The righteousness of Jesus has been put on us. At that moment, do you not believe that the Father looked at the Son and saw the sin of mankind and the Father turned his back on the Son? That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? All his life he'd been saying, my Father this, my Father this, and my Father's always talking to me, and my Father's always leading me, and I'm only doing what he's leading me to do. And you don't know my Father. I know my Father. He just told me this, and he just told me that. But on the cross, he cried out, hey, hey, hey. How God was separating himself from himself, I don't understand. But at that moment, all sin was put on Jesus, and he became sin. Father poured out his wrath on his son. Actually, it says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to crush him. In the same way, though, his righteousness has been put on you. You are righteous. And everything that he's keeping track of, he won't be used against you when it comes to the day of judgment. Oh, there's rewards and there's different things that for those of us who are in Christ, he's going, we're going to either be rewarded for eternity or miss out on, but it has nothing to do with or not we're there. It's already been settled. But if you reject God's offer to have your sins covered and totally forgiven, you'll be severely judged for eternity according to or in measure with everything you have done. I don't say that as much to this room unless there's somebody in here. I don't know everybody specifically and only God knows our hearts, but... I also say that for those who might be listening right now online. If you haven't responded to the only way you can be reconciled to God, which is through faith alone in what Jesus did, he's going to judge you one day. And he's kept track of every idle word, everything you've done, even the stuff in secret that nobody else knows about. Thank God we've been spared that. Go to Revelation chapter 20. One last thing, and then we'll get back to Ezekiel 7. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 11 through 15. This is the judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. This is after the seven-year tribulation period, after the thousand years on the earth. And all the wicked dead now are brought to life to stand before the throne. They're resurrected. They've been in Hades for a while. And chapter 20, verse 11, then... I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Don't miss that. What have we seen about God and his throne and how people are responding to him in the book of Revelation? They're around him. They're worshiping him. They're just in his presence. They're singing to him. At this point, it's all judgment. And everything tries to get away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. And everybody at this judgment goes to the lake of fire. But don't miss the fact that before they're thrown into the lake of fire forever, they're judged according to everything they've done that's been recorded for eternity in those books. God doesn't miss a thing. Go back to Ezekiel 7, though. Another thing we learn from chapter 7 of Ezekiel is that when the judgment of God comes, all the money in the world will do you no good. Look at chapter 7, verses 19 through 22. They cast their silver into the streets. Their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. Before we go any further, why? Why is their money no good at this time? There's nothing to buy. It don't matter how much money you have. If there's nothing to buy, it's no good. It's worthless. It's no value. And at the point now, they're just throwing all that stuff in the streets. It's now distasteful to them. You're going to see why. Keep reading. Look at verse, uh, the last part of verse 19. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable image and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I will make it an unclean thing to them. All right. What he's saying is this, is the gifts of God that he had given them, money, possessions, things that they had worshipped, not only had they worshipped their possessions, they also had taken their possessions, the gold and their silver, and formed them into idols to worship. They are now at the point where they realize... This is worthless. This is doing me no good. And I actually despise it. And they're just throwing it out in the streets. And I'm pretty sure at that time, nobody's running around picking it up. Because everybody realizes that it's no good. You know, in uh, Luke chapter 12, we're not going to turn there, verses 13 through 21, the story Jesus tells about the rich man who built bigger barns to store all his stuff. And then he says, man... Now you've got all it laid up for you. You're going to sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And what happens to him that night? He dies. What good was it? What good was it? Actually, the things that God had blessed them with, money, possessions, became their idols, even literally, like I just said. And God made them detestable. Look at verses, uh, verse 20 again. His beautiful ornament, ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I will make it an unclean thing to them. Again, write this down because there's so much more I want to cover real quick in the time we have left. Write this down and go back and look at it later on. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 9 through 19 says this, that God gives us good things to enjoy. It's not wrong to be rich. The Bible doesn't say being rich is a sin. There are just warnings for those who are rich because they'll have a temptation to put their faith in their possessions and their wealth. But having things is not a bad thing because if you look at the scriptures, what does God promise for those who obey him? He'll provide. You'll, your, your, your flocks will produce and your crops will grow and I will make sure that you'll have it running over. I'll take care of you. Every need you need, I will provide for. God has promised that he would provide things for us. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, that God gives us good things to enjoy. Actually, it's a cool passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and following. Nehemiah and Ezra, as you know, go back to rebuild the walls. And they find the law of the Lord and they read it to everybody. And everybody just starts weeping and repenting. And Nehemiah gets up and he says, hey, guys, this isn't to be a day of mourning. This isn't to be a day of celebration. You've heard the word of God. You've responded appropriately 
So don't mourn. Go home. This is literally what he says. You can double check me. Nehemiah 8, verses 9 and following. He says, go home. Eat the fat. Did you hear that, Beck? My wife tells me to cut it off. I was like, no, that's the best part. Eat the fat. We're going to have to put, can you cross-stitch that and put it on the wall? That would be a really cool verse. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Give to those who haven't prepared. And celebrate because you have responded appropriately to the word of the Lord. You see the heart of God? By the way, is heaven and the middle of the kingdom not described as a party, a feast? I want to come in with them and eat with them. And they responded appropriately. Having good things, enjoying good things is not bad, but be careful. When God's gifts become out of place or out of balance over time, God's gifts even become no longer pleasurable. As I shared with people last night, I love golf. I really do. I enjoy the, the walk. I actually walked 18 holes today. I enjoy the weather. I enjoy the exercise. I enjoy the chance to fellowship with other believers, which I got to today, or even meet people that don't know the Lord and share the good news with them. I love golf, but golf can become an idol. It can become what I live for. And we have to make sure that the Spirit of God is leading us to make sure that things stay in balance. Listen closely. It's not your job to determine whether or not you think it's gotten out of balance for somebody else. The Lord will determine that. Their Lord will determine that. The one who lives within them and knows their heart is the one who will determine that. Be careful because Christians over the years have wanted to be God and they've tried to tell everybody whether or not they thought something was out of balance. That's not your call. That's the Lord's call. Go to Proverbs 21. Look at verse 17. Proverbs 21, verse 17. No problem. You're over there by the air conditioning vent. I heard it kick on. Proverbs 21, verse 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who live, loves wine and oil will not be rich. See, the, the good things of God can become a problem. And at this point, the things God had blessed them with, they had actually worshiped, turned their back on God. And when the judgment came, everything that they had looked to now all of a sudden was distasteful to them. Go to Hosea chapter two. It didn't have time to go here last night. And I was so sad that we didn't. This is one of the most amazing passages. And if you remember back in our study of uh, Revelation, we, we actually looked at this passage, but I want you to see it. Hosea chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 13. I just want you to see the heart of God and how much he loves us and how much he wants to bless us. But he wants us to be acknowledging that it's from him. Hosea chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 13. Say to your brothers, you are my, not, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, plead, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a, like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. By the way, when Israel was saying, I'm going to go after my lovers who give me my oil and my flax and everything I need, who were they talking about? The false gods, all those false gods like Baal and whatever. 
Therefore, I will hedge up up her way with, with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. This is God, Jehovah. For it was better for me then than now. As she, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Look at verse 11. And I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me, the false gods. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. See, there's something here in Ezekiel that I want you to understand. We left off in verse 20. Look at verse 21. God says, I will give into the hands of foreigners for prey and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. And I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. What's the treasured place he's talking about here? His temple, the holy place. Why did God have them build the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness and the temple when they were there in the land that he blessed them? Why did God have them have the temple? Sacrifice and worship, but go get specific. So he could be there. He made a place so that he could come dwell with them. It was in the center and, and everything was to be focused around it because he wanted to be with them and he wanted to be their God. And what did they do? We saw already in our study. We're going to see it in a lot more in detail next week in our chapter 8 study. They profaned it by worshiping the Baals and all these other foreign gods from these foreign nations. And pretty much what God said is this. All this time you've been thinking that the blessings were coming from Baal and Molech and all these other gods that you've been worshiping. It was me all along that was doing it. But because you forgot me and you profaned my holy place, the place I designed to come be with you, because of that, I'm going to let you get your taste of what you've really chosen. You want to follow these other nations? You want to follow their gods? Go ahead. And he removed himself from their presence. And he let them profane that spot that he had made to be with them. Can you imagine? Some of you may understand something like this. Someone you love, maybe they've already gone to be with the Lord. But they had a certain chair in your house. You know, some place that they always sat. And you always just, we've had older relatives that there was just a certain spot they always sat. And it was a special spot to you because that might even still smell like them a little bit. They were there so much. But you just remember that spot where grandma sat or grandpa sat or whoever. Can you imagine somebody else now just taking over that spot and saying, forget that other person. It's about me, especially someone that's detestable. 
sitting in that spot that was so special. That's why it's hard for people when loved ones have died to see someone else come into the house because of all those memories. God had made that special spot for him to be there with them. And they had worshiped other gods there. They were detestable to him. He says, okay, I'm going to let you experience what they really think of you. These people that have led you astray, they're going to take some of you captive to be their slaves. The rest of you, they're just going to kill. And my mind went to that passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But he's so good at tempting us to do stuff, isn't he? I read a quote just this past week. The quote said this, when you're dealing with temptation, do not think about what you can gain by doing it. Think about what you will lose or could lose by doing it. When you're tempted to do something from the enemy, don't think about what you can gain or how good it's going to feel or how much pleasure it's going to bring you. Think about what you could lose if you do it. Go to chapter 7, look at verse 4, verse 9, and verse 27. You're going to see that phrase again we, we wrapped up with last time we were together. In chapter 7, verse 4, then you will know that I'm the Lord. Oh, by the way, let me back up to the beginning of the verse, though, and read it all together. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Look at verse 9. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Look at chapter 7, verse 27. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. We've already touched on this. I'm just reminding you of it. He's going to have every knee bow and every tongue acknowledge that he's Lord one day. Hopefully for us, it's not in a time of judgment that we finally acknowledge that he's the Lord. We're going to be able to finish tonight. You've all been real good. Again, I'm going to ask you a question tonight as we close, but I want you to listen closely. This question has two parts. It's a question for those who are here are those who are listening who have never been in, put in Christ yet. You've been trying to be a good person. You're trying to follow the teachings of Christ. You're trying to go to church. Just because you come to a Bible study on Wednesday night doesn't mean automatically that you are in Christ. My prayer is that everybody here is. There might be somebody here that the Spirit of God's talking to you. And I don't want to start off like I did tonight and show you that the reason God gives those warnings is because of his gift and not offer you the gift tonight. Is anyone here ready to respond to God's offer of mercy? To respond to his opportunity to repent and to come back to him? But like I said, it has two parts. We see in Acts chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira, I believe the Bible teaches that they were believers. When they sinned, what happened to them? All they did was lie. And God, to prove his seriousness about sin, he took them home early. 
right in front of everybody. Aren't you glad he hasn't done the same to us who are in Christ? Because we've done some stuff that he had every right to. As I read that, in the midst of your abominations, I'll judge. You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. The Bible does teach that there is a sin that's unto death. And if God's determined that a believer is going to be taken home early, he does that sometimes. And so I don't want you to sit back and say, well, I'm already in Christ. I don't have to worry about repenting. There's a lot of passages that talk about repenting to the believer, aren't there? If you look closely, didn't Jesus write to the seven churches in Revelation and to all of them except two? He said what? Repent. He's purifying his bride. He's making us more and more like Jesus Christ. He's conforming us into his image. And so I say to you as well, is anybody here ready to respond to God's offer of mercy? Because he's had every right to take each one of us home early like Ananias and Sapphira, but he hasn't. Is anybody here ready to respond to his opportunity to repent and to come back to him? Go to Luke 15. I'm going to show you a a familiar passage and one that you might not know. Luke chapter 15. Look at verses 11 through 24. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and his ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Let me ask you a question. Is this story talking about a lost person getting saved or a believer coming back to the Lord? The answer is yes. Be careful of trying to take a parable and make it fit every little. It's a parable. Parables are teachings that Jesus used to teach a point. What is the point? The point is, the Father's heart is, if you'll repent, if you'll just say, I didn't do what I was supposed to do, I've done wrong, and you come to him, he'll run in your direction. That offer is for the people who need to be saved. That offer is for those of us who might have strayed a little in our walk with Jesus Christ. Did Peter not go from saying, you're the Christ? And Jesus said, you know what? You couldn't even have said that unless my father gave you the ability. Correct? Isn't that what Jesus said? He goes from that just a few days later to saying, I never met him. I've never even seen the guy. I don't know him. And when Jesus rose from the dead, 
He told the women there at the garden that Sunday morning, go tell my brothers and Peter, go chase them. And when the two men on the road to Emmaus that night met Jesus, after meeting with Jesus, they run back into the upper room and they say, he is alive. We've seen him and he's appeared to Peter. In other words, he already sought Peter out. And actually, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, when it lists Jesus' appearances after his resurrection, he appeared first to Peter. Isn't that cool? The teaching is, the heart of the Father is, I want to bless you. I love you. I want to be your life. Don't forget me. Humbly walk with me and watch how I take care of you. And we're going to close with Isaiah 64. And I want you to hear this because I want us to be praying this passage that Israel will pray it. We know that the church age is coming to a close. And he's about to finish what he started with Israel. They've been put on hold. They've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But at the end of the tribulation period, all Israel will be saved. And God's going to be taking them through a process. And listen, I was reading this. And I started to, as, as I was reading, the Spirit of God began to show me, I believe without question, these words are going to be read and prayed by the nation of Israel. This is prophecy about what Israel is going to be saying in the future, and I want you to begin praying it that they would begin to call out to him. Listen to what Isaiah 64 says, 1 through 12. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is the second coming. That the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a destruction. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruined. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Isn't that a beautiful prayer? It's a prayer for us to pray. But it's a prayer I believe the nation of Israel is going to be praying while they're hiding in Basra. Pray that they will do that and be watching for his return. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.